0: Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com. Man, good morning. There we go. It's good to see you. Uh, We are in our third week of the Old Testament book of uh, Nehemiah together. Uh, It's a book containing uh, really the the story, the historical story of how God uh, restored his people from from ruin. So we mentioned it earlier. This book has some really solid lessons to glean in it. Right. There's some great stuff to kind of take and look at and apply. Specifically at the front side of the book, we learn quite a bit about what does godly leadership look like. And, and towards the end, we learn a lot about what, what godly biblical community and healthy biblical community uh, looks like. And, and so in this book, we do partially want to take these lessons like Proverbs, and, and we want to be able to collect them, and we want to be able to uh, apply them and see how they can help us. So we want to do things like see how through uh, Nehemiah's example. It could really deepen some of the leadership that that, it, that is here, and, and some of you may not even know it, but you are uh, our leaders, and we want to see through this book how it can teach us to follow Nehemiah in this kind of prayer first. Uh, mentality to follow God in a deep way, even uh, through scary things. All of that is absolutely true. But here's the thing, in all of the lessons to glean in the pragmatism in the Proverbs, we do not want to absorb that at the cost of of seeing uh, the gospel, right? That's a big thing. We don't want to get all of these steps, but then not see uh, Jesus through it. This book shows us the good news of the gospel. How this book, Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, before Jesus even stepped in, to the world points to the redemptive heart of God. We want to see that over and above the pragmatism. Yes, let that help our leadership. Let it help our community through this book, but more so we want to see Christ. So for, for a moment, we'll just kind of look through what we saw so far, just to make sure we understand how to see Jesus through it. In the first week, we see that in Nehemiah, uh, he is so moved and burdened by Jerusalem's God's people, being uh, d- destroyed that he weeps and he mourns and he prays and he fasts for four entire months over that great burden. We can glean from this that godly leadership responds to burden with emotion and action, right? Our, our world, we talked about this, they love to respond In emotion, but not very much action. Godly leadership responds both ways. Godly men and women go to God with what grieves them and they share with God what is grieving their hearts instead of blaming everyone or blaming God and asking God to intervene as they share these things with them, with him. All of that is, is also true. Uh, all of that is worth noting. All of that is worth modeling. But even more than that, we want to see the faithfulness of Jesus, the better Nehemiah in this book, over and above the things that this man, Nehemiah, did. Just as Nehemiah went to the Father uh, in prayer, uh, just as he did this to build courage and a plan in the book, uh, and just as he didn't just ask God to fix all things for him, and he prayed for a plan, and he prayed for for courage, what we want to understand is is Jesus did this too. Jesus went to the Father in the the difficult things, and he modeled this for us. We want to see that everything that that Nehemiah did is just kind of a shadow of what Jesus did in in a much better way way. Then we look at courage. When, when when Nehemiah prays for courage in the text that we covered last week, it was great. He prayed for that. He built a plan. He built courage and sharing uh, with God what was going on in his heart, and that was wonderful, but what we need to see is what Nehemiah did was good, but what Jesus did is better. Nehemiah goes to God going, hey, can I can I step into this thing for you? Jesus goes to God saying, hey, can I give my life for this? Those are different, fundamentally different. We want to see Jesus and the high cost of what he did, his redemptive heart, his love for us over and above anything else in this. I hope that makes sense. We want to see Christ in every page. That's what being gospel-centered means, right? Gospel-centered is, is this kind of junk drawer term right now. We say everything's gospel-centered. That's not true. Being gospel-centered is learning how to see the gospel and Jesus in everything, in, in decisions of, of life, and how we treat our job, and how we treat our neighborhood, and how we parent, and, and how we do relationships, and how we navigate the world. It's seeing Jesus in all of it. That's what being gospel-centered means. We want great steps in this book, but we want Jesus even more. We want to see him clearly. Uh, so that's the hope that we behold uh, Jesus. So this week, the story will begin to take a bit of a new direction for us to, to process. Nehemiah has prayed and fasted for four entire months, it built courage and a plan in him. He uh, then made a pretty scary ask to King Artaxerxes last week for permission, for protection and provision. We went through that, but now things are going to move from, from prayer and, and planning to actually carrying out the plan. Do you see how that's different? I'm just going to think about what I need to do, and I'm going to pray to God about what I should do. Now he's actually going to have to start doing the, the, the actual steps of the plan, and that's different. It's one thing for Nehemiah to say, hey, I really care for Jerusalem, and I want them to be rebuilt, and I, I want them to, to recover. That's one thing, but it's a whole other thing to actually labor towards it. It's a whole other thing to see a God-sized calling and then learn to, in the middle of fear, put one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. And that's the process that we're going to see in this. And I want us to maybe be thinking in this vein of what God may be calling us towards individually and as a church today. Are there things that you have thought about, prayed about, prayed about? made plans about. There's things out there that you see like, man, I, I, something should happen there. Is that where your heart's at, but you've never actually taken action towards something? Maybe let this book help you to see that maybe this next season is a season of action after you've already prayed and built a plan and built courage in God. That, that is the, the hope. So Nehemiah 2. We're going to cover verse 9, and we'll finish that uh, chapter in, I believe, verse 20. So uh, the way we'll read this text, because of the way it's broke out, we'll read a section and kind of talk about it, and a section and talk about it, and a section and talk about it, rather than reading the, the, the large part and then maybe zoning out. So here's the first verses. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanbalat uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the Amoronite uh, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had came to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So, Nehemiah sets out, right? He's got permission from the king. He's got letters in hand. He's, he's got permission to go get trees, and he's got provision and all that, and he heads out on this quest to rebuild Jerusalem. If this were a movie, right? Imagine the Lord of the Rings. This is where the epic montage would happen, right? They're, they're heading across the valley, and there's these drone epic shots, and there's this large building music, and there's anticipation, and then there's excitement. There's even officers of the army with him, and his horsemen, and everything looks good, and it's going to be great, but then before he gets very far, that changes, right? The anticipation builds, but then trouble comes before he even gets really that close to Jerusalem. As Nehemiah gives the very first governors those papers from King Artaxerxes saying that he has permission to rebuild the city, immediately opposition presented itself before him. It said that Sanballat and Tobiah were displeased greatly that someone had come to seek uh, the, the welfare of the people of Israel, meaning uh, the, the people of God. What we have to understand is these men who were displeased, that's not just a little side note uh, there. That's actually a large part of what's happening because these guys are going to kind of come after Nehemiah for, for really uh, the rest of the, the book. And these guys are extremely powerful. The, the first guy, Balat, was believed to be the governor of Samaria or else he soon would be the governor of Samaria. Right, That's a big deal. And Tobiah was born uh, of a hugely powerful, rich, influential. Influence, influential and strong family. So these guys who are displeased with Nehemiah automatically before he even moves a stone, they're really big hitters in his time. Uh, essentially, these big hitters present themselves and they go, no, nah, this ain't happening on my watch. I don't care if you have papers. This is not happening. You're not going to do this. You are not going to to rebuild this. Now, these times aren't just like Hours, right? This is a little bit more wild west. These influential men, these rich men, these strong men could have e- easily sent a couple of hired hands to kill Nehemiah and the whole thing would be over. Right? It could be done quickly. One, one unforeseen arrow, one, one jab of the knife, one swing of the sword, and Nehemiah's work to rebuild uh, could be over before it ever starts. And Nehemiah knows this. These really strong, these really powerful men do not like what, the, what we're doing. They're going to be coming after us. This moment can't be ignored, and this is another chance to quit. I hope that you're seeing in this story, we did this a couple times last week, in the middle of calling, there are going to be many bumps in the road where you run up into something and it's going to be a moment to go, man, do I, not, do I just not want to do this anymore? And he has a moment to decide, do I move forward or do I not? Before Nehemiah um, faced maybe anger from King Artaxerxes, that was a, poss- a possibility, but now he faces a real enemy. One that presented itself loudly and forcibly in front of him. He has real opposition staring him down. So this brings us to a a major point. If you're a note taker, here's kind of one of the first things that we can pick up. God's calling often walks us into opposition. Not away from it. God's calling often walks us right into opposition. Now, we need to see that God told us this would happen from the very beginning. In Genesis... Right In the beginning when he created and after humanity had sinned and he moves towards Adam and Eve and he begins to lay out a plan of redemption even after they had sinned against him. He says this, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? This is God immediately when he moves towards Adam and Eve when they, when they sin. And what he's telling them is, is the plan to fix all things. The plan to redeem. My plan, if you want to see it come to, to pass, if you want to be a part of it, my plan will naturally stir conflict between those following God. That's what he calls the seed of the woman. And those who are following are under the influence of the serpent. Are, are, are you following with that? at the very jumping off plan of the plan of redemption that God gives, as soon as he mentions it, as soon as he says, hey, I'm going to fix this, he says, but be aware to walk this path with me to fight sin, to see people redeemed, to see dead people come to life spiritually, to see spiritual garden, or graves turned into gardens will line you up face-to-face with real opposition. You cannot walk out God's calling and his mission and not kick the beehive of the enemy in the process. This is what God told us himself in Genesis, and this is what Nehemiah is experiencing. I'm moving forward with God's plan of redemption, of being rebuilding things, and people are not going to like that. We have to stress this point clearly because something has kind of happened to us. We're prone to believe that in the moments that we face opposition or hardship or suffering or tension or difficulty, especially when it comes into an endeavor that we think that we're doing with or for God, as soon as we hit this hard moment that comes, we immediately begin to think, oh my gosh, I'm hitting opposition, something must be wrong. Either I'm doing something wrong, or, or God's angry with me, or, or maybe you don't think that you're doing something wrong, but you turn to somebody around you you go, well, you're doing something wrong, and that's why we're experiencing this opposition. Uh, but what we have to understand is, is God said the whole time, if you're going to walk in my plan of, op- of, of redemption, you're going to hit opposition. We have this prosperity thing, even if it's not about money, deep in our hearts that when we hit hard things, we think, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have those hard things. God goes, no, 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 this is going to happen. And when you hit opposition, it's not always a sign that something is wrong. Often it's a sign that you're headed in the right direction. Now we have to see the cause of the opposition clearly in the text. Why is there opposition towards Nehemiah? And the text says it's because Nehemiah was seeking the welfare of, of the people of God. This teaches us something. This is a bit of an eye-opening moment for us. This means that the book of Nehemiah isn't just about some wall out of rocks being rebuilt. That's not what's going on here. It's not just about masonry. It's not just like an, like an HG channel flipping a, a house and turning something that was garbage into something nice. That's not what's going on here. What's at stake here is the people of God and the holy name of God. Jerusalem, the the city, the the, the location in that day symbolized in the Old Testament the people of God's well-being and the holiness and the greatness of God the Father. So Nehemiah, when he, when he sees this town in rubble, he's not just going in going, hey man, I want to modernize this and make this better. What he sees this city destroyed, what he goes is, is the people of God are destroyed and the nations around are mocking God going, you can't even fix them. We destroyed them easily. You're a joke. And Nehemiah goes, this isn't going to stand. They will not mock my God. They will not mock his people. What's at stake here is more than a pile of rocks in a building. It is the name and fame of God and the welfare of God's people. It's redemption in people's lives. This is why Nehemiah says, this is why we must go. This is why he fasted. This is why he prayed. And this is why they got angry. They didn't just want the land. They did not want the welfare of God or his people. So verse 11, we'll read a little bit more through 16. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I Road. So, evidently, only Nehemiah got a horse or donkey and everyone else had to, had to walk. And 13, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate and inspected, inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass." Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were going to do the work what was happening. This is humorous to me. I'm going to do all this and I'm told people they're going to help me yet. But I'm gonna go inspect it. So Nehemiah makes an 850 mile uh, journey to Jerusalem. And the, the way that their roads took, it, it may have taken him closer to a thousand miles to travel. Can you imagine before you even get there, there there's no car. You're not flying. Can you imagine before you even get to uh, the, the the task that God has given you, you're going to have to walk 850 miles? Well, he does this and then he rests for three days and then he sets off on a recon mission to inspect the damage. God has called me to, to build this thing back up. I've, I've heard it was destroyed, but I haven't really seen what's going on. So I'm going to go check out what the damage of the city looks like. And the text says he goes under the cover of night. But But look at the words. He says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart. We could kind of probably preach a whole sermon on that. What my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I found this comforting that God really does work. God does give plans. God does give wisdom. God does give direction. Uh, if we seek him and we and we ask for it, that, that's what the, the Proverbs even start with. If you want wisdom, call out to God for it and he will give it to you. This means that we're not always making the best educated guesses that we can and assuming maybe it will work out. Our God gives us direction. This is what he would prayed for and God had done it. God had put a plan in his heart. And One of the things I kind of want you to hear is is there's a lot of callings and things I believe that God is stirring in us for a moment, and some of you are second-guessing, and I just read the scripture again to say, no, 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 God probably put that there. It may not be you. It was probably him. Don't, don't, don't try and pass it off or forget it or let the enemy tell you that you're not good enough to do it. God puts plans and he puts burdens and he puts pl- uh, things of, of action into the hearts of his people. And that's a glorious thing. I'm not alone. My father has given me a task and this is where I will go. We see the balance of courage and wisdom from Nehemiah. He's confident in God. But he also makes sure not to brazenly go and draw attention during the day, right? There's already people angry by the day of light if he's going and trying to measure and look and do and point people around. It's going to cause quite a bit of a ruckus and it's going to make things more difficult than they need to be. So he depends on God. He's confident in God, but he's also not being an idiot about it. He goes at night careful to see the scope of the work that needs to be done, and when he gets there, I, I don't know if he imagines, like maybe it's not as bad, maybe they exaggerated, maybe it's kind of busted, but not really busted, and he gets there, and it's, it's really, really, really bad. Uh, worse the, the, than he could have uh, imagined. It's not just that parts of the wall are knocked down. Uh, It's not just parts of it don't work to an optimal level. The the text makes sure to tell us they were completely broken down and set on fire. It's not just broken. It's broken and we lit it all on fire. There's literally nothing less. It's a complete loss. It's terrible. It was so bad that it says at the fountain gate and the king's pool that the animal that he rode couldn't pass. The text is saying this, the rubble is so high, the, the, the damage is so bad, the, the rocks are so deep and, and gnarly and jaded. What used to be this beautiful thing of God's city is such a, a, a nasty mess that I can't even get my animal to walk through it. I have to get off and I have to crawl and I have to scale to even see the scope of what's happening. Can you, pick, can you kind of picture that? Imagine you set your gaze to rebuild something. To fix something, you feel called by God, you feel God has led me to do this. Imagine you set your gaze on it and then you get there to look and the damage is so vast that you can't even really get through it. I mean, my mind would just think like, I don't even know how to get rid of, I don't even know how to get rid of the, the demolition and the rubble, let alone put something back together. What am I going to do? This is the moment that he has. Just an, another moment to go, this task is too big. I think that as he runs into this, it has to be Overwhelming. He has to begin thinking, man, I, I don't know. I, I believe that the enemy is probably whispering in his ear. At, at, in this point, you'll never finish this. L- look at you. How do you think that you could get this done? You're surrounded by enemies. There's no way. You, you, you're you're a, a, a glorified bartender to a king. What do you think you're going to do here at Nehemiah? This again gives him a moment that he could have quit. As I thought about this and the way that I'm wired and some of us are, are wired, it's one thing to be brave. It's a whole other thing to see really hard work and not run from it, though. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like we can be loud, like I have confidence in God, and we can talk a big game. It's one thing to do that and not be scared and talk. It's a whole other thing to be quiet and just put up one foot in front of another, up front of another, and that's what he does here. All roads in this text seem to point back to prayer, don't they? Nehemiah connected to God through prayer. God gave him courage that was not his own. God gave him plans that were not even his own. God gave him help so that he wouldn't fold in the face of the enemies. And then he strengthened his will when the task was beyond what he, be, what he could have ever imagined to not quit. Again, I just tell you guys, a prayer first people is a powerful people. That's what I hope that we become, uh, hard-headed for the glory of God, even with really big tasks in front of us. He has a moment to run away, but he doesn't. Verses 17 through 20, the, the last part of the text for today. Then I said to them, all right, so what, what's going on here uh, at the end of the, the part before, he had gone out to inspect it and it said, hey, I haven't told all the people who are going to help me what they're going to do yet. So this, uh, and I said to them, is all the people that he's recruiting to help. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me. And said, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite sir, uh, servant, and if you'll notice, there's a new name, And Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Not, Not me, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and we will build and you have no portion or no right or no claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had a calling and he He started walking towards this calling first on his own. Remember the first moments of this calling, what does Nehemiah do? He goes to be alone with God. The first part of it is just him and God. And he he prays and he goes just to God. But now comes a moment when others have to hear the vision and be brought in. right? When others have to be called to, to join into the plan of restoration, which leads to the next point, if you're kind of the point taker here, leaders do not accomplish their tasks alone. They don't. They haven't been called to. This isn't the way that God does things. We may love the Lone Ranger and the one-man army in in stories or in in movies that we take in. The individual who goes out and kind of gets it all done on their own. In our mind, that may be really great, but that is not how calling gets accomplished in the Bible. Think about it. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, when he began his earthly ministry, what's one of the first things that he went and did? Hey, fisherman, come with me. I want to make you fishers of men. He immediately began recruiting the disciples, and they began recruiting others as well. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, even called others to come and join. He cast vision and brought others in. When God gives us calling, he works much like this in us. When God puts a calling before his children, we have to know that we will need each other in order to accomplish it. In every way, we are not called to a life of radical individuality. We're called to a life of radical community where we do life together, where we defend each other, where we pray for each other, where we build each other up, and then we also carry out plans of calling that God has given us, and we see glorious things done, not by the work of our own hands alone or our own ingenuity, but by God our Father doing a work in us. See, our world has this go-it-alone, do-it-yourself, have-your-own-way mentality, and we have to understand that is antithetical to the calling that is in our hearts. God doesn't call you to do it alone. He calls you to go with others. Now, Nehemiah knows this, so he goes to recruit others by casting vision. And what he's doing when he's casting vision is, he remember, he had a burden in his heart. He goes, I'm going to tell these people so that the burden that's in my heart can become their burden as well. He doesn't just want to use people, and he doesn't say, hey, just trust me, come and work for a while, it's fine. He doesn't do any of that. He wants to walk with them through the fire, understanding what they're going to do, calling them to be united in purpose to come and help him. So he says to them, do you see the trouble that we are in? Do you see the trouble that we are in? Do you see the burden? Do you see how Jerusalem lies in ruins? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision this is the call he's going guys do you see the problem that we have come and walk with me to see it undone he's sharing with them hey guys it's not just a wall we are rebuilding our people. We're seeing the rubble that is our people's lives. We're seeing the rubble that is really the reputation of God in the land at that moment. And you're going, let's rebuild this. Let's restore this. Let's fix this. Let's rush in with God and see it rebuilt for his glory, for his name, for his fame. And so his people may, may walk and be redeemed. He tells them, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm going to do. Will you come with me? Who's with me? This is the amazing part. They jump in eager to do it. Eager to do it. Check this out. Nehemiah didn't hide how bad it is. Have you ever, hey, come help me move. Like, it's not going to be bad. Some of you have. Um, Yeah, sorry. Um, He doesn't hide any of that from them. He doesn't hide how bad it is. He doesn't hide how big the task is. Instead, he lays a burden in front of them and goes, it's enormous, but our calling is enormous too. This is what we're doing. Catch the vision. And what do they do? They they opt in. Man, let this encourage you. God-sized visions don't always scare people. Sometimes they're the motivation they actually need. We've talked about this a lot, these moments that we've been lulled asleep to the beauty of God and the kingdom of God. God God-sized visions that can be scary can also be so powerful that people go, I'll give my life to that. I'll go to the ends of the earth for that. I'll give money. I'll give time. I will bleed. I will go for that. And this is what happens here. The people say, I will go do that. I want to face this problem with you. I want to serve the Father. I want to see the kingdom come. Let's go. Guys, this is how we've been praying as our own church lately. God, show us the vision that you want us to run at. There's been will and calling that he's stirring all over and the elders have just been praying a lot. Show us exactly where you want us to point it at. Please show us because we want to be able to run towards what we're called to. Now, while the people with Nehemiah were fired up, right? He goes, he makes the ask, hey, come, come be a part of this. Let us do this and we'll rebuild and, and all that. The people of God are extremely fired up. They're ready to go. It says "Their strength in their hands. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds cool and they're ready to go. But other people aren't so happy about it. Sambalat, Tobiah, and now this new guy, Geshem, become even more angry. And this new guy isn't just any guy. He's most likely uh, the, the king of Kedar at the time. Now, are you following kind of what's happening here? He's recruiting and help is growing, but so are enemies. And so is the intensity of their attacks at him. Right? It's not just you know that trajectory of, of the American dream like up into the. That's not what's going on here. the 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 intensity of the opposition is growing and these names are really significant in this way because these men are extremely powerful but they're surrounding him. So imagine Jerusalem is here and when he when he says these names, the people in the Old Testament would have understood what it meant is one of them's here, one of them's here, one of them's here. It means you're completely surrounded. Your enemies have swallowed you up and they're at you, trying to crush you. There's not just one crazy guy who doesn't like what you're doing and sneers at you. Three massively powerful men have you completely surrounded, and there's nowhere that you can go. Now, when we look at the trouble that he's in. The task is big and the trouble becomes big. But look what these three men do first to try and stop Nehemiah and those with him. They say to him, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Well, who do they mean here? They mean King Artaxerxes. We already know that Nehemiah was sent from the king himself. He was given letters. He was given provision. He was given permission uh, to go and to, to rebuild. So what the enemy is doing here, what the opposition of do, is doing here is accusing Nehemiah of something that isn't true. They're trying to twist and manipulate and move a narrative in order to scare them so badly that, that, that they'll quit. They're basically saying, hey, we're going to try and make it seem like you're rebelling against the king to where he crushes you and we don't have to. They're lying. They're saying things that aren't true. They're trying to twist things to scare and alienate them. And our, as I kind of thought about this, this ploy of coming at them with this twisting of what is real and twisting of what is true to scare them to so bad that they'll quit, our current cultural moment is one that I think we can connect to this idea with. So many people right now are, are terrified of, of what surrounds them. Right? Remember, they're surrounded on each side. So many uh, believers right now are scared of being called out, uh, of, of causing an issue. They're scared of being that guy. They're scared of being canceled. They're, they're scared of being accused of hatred. They're, they're scared of being called narrow-minded. They're scared of losing friends, of losing income, of losing jobs, of losing neighbors, of losing friends, of all of those things. They're so afraid of what's around them to the point that they've been paralyzed to where they just can't do anything to follow God. But this group prayed up and strengthened up. They don't quit. The fear of the mob surrounding them doesn't stop them. They move forward. and I believe that we should take courage in that. There's a lot of reasons for fear right now. But there's a God who is stronger than all of them that should be really reasons for courage as well. Look what Nehemiah says, then he replied back to them. right? So the three strong men, they have him surrounded. They're like, hey man, what if we make it seem like you're rebelling against the king? And, And Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants, we will arise and build, but you have no portion or any right or any claim in Jerusalem. So look at Nehemiah's response to the accusation and the threats of the men. He doesn't respond. Right? You, don't, you don't see that in the text. Right? I'm not rebelling. You're lying. He doesn't deal with that. We have to see that not every accusi- accusation is worthy of a response. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is move forward in the path that you're called to. Instead, Nehemiah seems to say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of kings. I'm not afraid of your people. I'm not afraid of your mobs. I'm not afraid of your anger. I'm not afraid of your nasty accusations. You know what I am afraid of? I'm afraid of God. I respect in him in awe and reverence towards him to where no matter what you say to me, I can't quit. Nehemiah's character had been so strongly developed through reading uh, the word and through prayer and through fasting that now he is confident that, that the call that God has put on his life, that God will see that through. He's going, hey, this isn't even about me anymore. My God will see this through. Yes, I hear your accusations. I'm not afraid of you, though. My God is stronger than you, and he will get me through this. Next week, we'll see the work begin to start and how the community is involved. But for today, can we kind of think about our hearts and what God may be saying to us through this text? Are there areas like Nehemiah that you kind of see the people of God in ruins? Because remember, that's what was happening here. As he goes out and he inspects, it's not just broken walls. He is laboring and lamenting over people that are broken. He wants to rebuild the walls to rebuild the people. Are there ways that you look at the people of God and see them in ruins? And it hurts you and you believe that maybe God has called you to rebuild and see that restored. If this is in you, if this is brewing in there, may you consider that that is a calling that he's placed on your life, which is holy and good. I've had many conversations with some of you over the last couple weeks, and and I'm kind of blown away at at what it seems to be really clear calling that God has placed on some of you that that maybe you don't even realize. I've heard deep yearnings to disciple people, not just be around people and say Jesus-y things, to help people grow in their faith and follow Jesus. Deep yearnings to do that. I think that's a calling. I've heard people who who have historically been terrified of evangelism say, I want to be built up and I want to be sent out. I want to evangelize. I want to share the gospel. I want to see people know Christ. Yes, I am terrified, but I want to go. I've seen other people who who are stirred to neighborhoods or areas or other places uh, to do works for God and show the glory of God there. If this is happening in you, can I I just encourage you, will you walk towards that? Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, the task can be big, but would you you understand that that's a holy and divine calling? What are the processes? What can we do with this? If God has put that on your heart, we've already covered, pray about it. Ask for help. Ask for a plan. But then in light of what happens today, we're not meant to walk this road alone. Begin to share the burden by telling other people around you, man, I think God is calling me towards this. And here's the beautiful thing that I think he'll do. I think you'll be shocked if somebody else will go, oh, me too. What are we... Oh, man. And confirm calling in you by realizing that he's stirring in some of you the same things and you don't even know it. God is already stirring, already working, and I believe he confirms calling this way by other people going, man, I've been wrestling with that too, and I believe that we're meant to walk at that together. As we just step back as as an elder at the church, my job is to preach the gospel, point to Jesus, and, and, and help equip you and send you. So if there are callings too that you're going, man, I think God's placing this on my heart, and you want somebody to talk to about that, let me meet with you. Meet with another elder. Our job is to try and encourage you, to cheerlead you, to send you out and say, go for it. So the the commission would be really this. Pray, plan, share, and we'll meet and we'll help you give you the next steps if you need to. The fear is for for too long, maybe we've kind of held on to what God is stirring us inside out of fear. And now's the time to kind of pray and let it out instead. Pray over it first. Invite others to join you. Let me just encourage you, this is how areas of ministry are started. Right? Some, some of the great things in our city, City of Refuge, that's done great works in, in refugees' hearts, one woman had a desire and started that. This is the beauty of how God starts things. This is how the kingdom of God comes more. And, and I, I hope that you would hear this uh, from, from me and, and the other elders. Here is permission and, and commission. Please start going. We'll help you in any way you need. But for far too long, maybe we've waited on the the entity of the church to start areas of mission, and we forgot you are the church. So let us help you in any way possible. But, man, if God would stir things, strengthen our hand, and then send us out together, man, what a beautiful thing that would be. I read uh, an insert from a book this week and, and sent it to a couple people. Um... I can't even say the guy's first name, but uh, Babcock is his last name. And he says this out of, of, of something he wrote. So this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. That's not a question. That's an exclamation point and earth and heaven be one. This is the beauty God calls us to be about. This is his world, his plan of redemption, and we get called into it. I'm praying and hopeful that this book is stirring in us, encouraging things towards walking towards that. Uh, the, The hope in here is that we'd walk towards calling and leadership and prayer and community and not just place a weight on you. One of the last things I want you to hear is you've had this calling forever and never done anything with it. That's terrible. That's not what this book is meant to do not shame, not weight, not duty. The hope is that it stirs in us this excitement to see greater things come, that God isn't done with us, that he wants to work in our small ragtag group here in a Seventh-day Adventist building, that he wants to do something in us. How exciting is that to ponder that God may not be done that our Father has plans, that He has things that He wants to send us into that we don't even know yet, and the battle isn't over, no matter how crazy the world feels around us. This is what happened in Nehemiah, and I think this is what is happening in us as well. Praying God sends us out into into this to show His glory for the people around. But before we walk away from that today, again, in light of gospel centrality, here's what we also need to see. There is a greater leader than Nehemiah, though. One who can deliver you from from the dangers that you're seeking. There is one who is more zealous for God than Nehemiah ever was. There is one who wanted to see the kingdom of God come more than Nehemiah. There is one who wanted the the Father's will to be done more than than Nehemiah. And this was Jesus. And, And this zeal led Jesus to give his very life so that all who trusted him would be saved. Hear the good news in that. That God has worked out salvation in Christ. If you find yourself like Jerusalem, the walls of your heart are broken down. They're torn down. If you're wondering, how do I get out of this and I can't fix this and what do I do? There's a greater leader than Nehemiah who's already made a way out for you. This is the beauty. Jesus has come, paid for your sin, the sin that maybe you've been trying to deal with and figure out how to navigate forever. Jesus stands there waiting, offering to rebuild you by himself and for his glory. Man, the hope here is from these uh, self-fixing projects that we have going on that we'd be able to exhale and say, God, will you fix me? And understand that his message is, yes, I've come for that exact reason. This is the gospel. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't care if you've been with us for years and years and years or if it's your first time here. This is what I would just tell you. If you feel the weight of your sin and don't know what to do with it, turn to Jesus with it. I'd love to pray with you about that. I, I share more with you about that if you need, but we need to see Jesus as over and above anything that Nehemiah has ever done. Nehemiah is just a shadow of Christ, the one who has done so much to rebuild us from our brokenness. Today, man, I hope that this isn't just stirring to try and cause emotion to grow. There really is beautiful calling I think God has placed on you. I'd love to pray for it and see what would happen out of it. I'd love to have plans. I'd love for some of you to go like, I never thought God would use me. And then see that he does. And see greater things come about because there's a calling and burden in your life that God stirred you towards and pointed you towards. And Jesus was made much. And even the burden that he's putting in your heart, just like Nehemiah, Jesus will be the better you as well. You're just pointing at him with all of this. This is the beauty of these texts. This is the beauty of the rebuild. It's all pointing at Jesus. Band, you guys can come back. Uh, we'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the beauty. All of our burdens, all of our callings are worthless without redemption. And Jesus has come to redeem us. He's calm. He's paid the price on the cross for So as we take the, the, the communion cups are in the entryway. You do not have to be a member to take here. Your faith just has to be in Jesus to be able to take. But as you take, remember in the midst of calling and all of these things that we are wrestling with, over and above all of that, your Savior has died for you. He shed his blood for you. He has rebuilt you through what he has done. As we worship, I pray that your heart would just be encouraged in that. His sacrifice is more than enough for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to rebuild you. And then he wants to do greater things through you than you ever really thought possible. That's the beauty that I pray that you think through as we worship and take today. Will you stand with me? Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Lord, we just pray open our eyes more clearly. to what you're calling us to. I pray that we see simple things like starting a Bible study with someone at work as a beautiful calling. I pray that we see mothers teaching their children about Jesus as a beautiful calling. Sharing Jesus in our neighborhood is a beautiful calling. May we see these things that we wrestle in our heart with, as beautiful tasks and beautiful burdens given to us by you. Let us see that. Strengthen our weary hands and hearts and send us towards it, Lord. I pray for that. Jesus, I thank you for your mercy. You're patient and you're kind. You've come to rebuild all the things that we could never do in our own hearts. We thank you for that. May we be overwhelmed by that. Jesus, you are good. I pray that we see you and... Even when we have such a, a far way to go in our own mind, I pray that we would see today that the Father is well-pleased through what Jesus has done for us. God, be glorified. Let us trust you more. Let just be a part of what you're doing. We pray that in your name. Holy Spirit, speak to us. All of our best plans without your speaking to us are worthless. So come, draw near, work in our hearts. Show us your ways. We pray that in your name for your glory, God. We love you. Amen.